Now, uh, for today, we're going to finish up external entailment. We're going to take a look at your papers, and we're going to get into Chapter 9 with some very interesting things. Uh, I'm going to just say right now, so I don't forget it, JB, an extremely interesting paper on 9, the way you developed that, again, with going to Des Moines. We're not going to have time to go through all that, but I wanted to tell you how much I appreciated that. It's uh, actually, uh, I think you're actually getting it. You know? Yeah, yeah, I know. Watch out. Well, and he's developing it and shows that he does it, you know. It's kind of not like, as an example, having people bury Boston Red Sox jerseys in your new stadium. I mean, it's not like that. So, yeah. Okay, now, we were working on Kaleo yesterday and about the external entailments. So for uh, rank-and-file Christians, let's say, as opposed to what Paul was called to do. Now, in, in the cases that we had with called, we have a called apostle or called saints. Now, the second example, which was ex um, exercise number 11 for you, was this hypakoe pisteos, obedience of faith. So what you have here is this genitive represents, now watch how I'm going to do this. This genitive represents one of the external entailments which has actually, so to speak, come to the surface now. So in other words, Paul could have said something like this. He gave me this apostolate for obedience among the Gentiles. Well, now you'd have to have, oh, who's going to obey? What are they going to obey? How are they going to obey? They have all those external entailments. When you say obedience of faith, you know that in some way, faith is going to be one of the external entailments that you have to account for. Now the question is, where is it on the basic sense? <clears throat> and uh, we, we took a look at a number, uh, you can look at a number of examples there. And what I would contend is that, uh, take your Greek New Testaments, that you take a look at Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It says, And the word of the Lord continued to grow, and the number continued to multiply of the disciples in Jerusalem greatly. And a great crowd of the priests became obedient to the faith. So here you have Hupakoe uh, being put back into the verb. And then you look for where that vocable occurs in the longhand sentence. Now, this is a particularly good example, and you, can, you get this in the concordance as well. Just, but you've got to look up. What do you have to look up? Hupakuo, not hupakoe. That's the key always to this. You've always got to be taking this back to 
the verbal root. You've always got to be going back to the verbal root. Now, a couple of issues come up, and this is where you have the whole thing of how, how widely can you cast the net. Right, You've got a couple of issues. Number one, we've moved from the writings of Paul to the book of Acts. Now, when we were doing called, and we had called apostle in Romans 1 and called saints in Romans 1, we looked at other Pauline epistles, right? We looked at 1 Corinthians, Chris, we looked at 1 Corinthians, we looked at Galatians, we looked at Thessalonians. <clears throat> so we're at least staying in the same author. Now here we go a little bit further outside, and so a person can say, well, it's a different author, and it's probably right that when you go to a different author, your probability factor kind of goes down a little bit. Now you say, but Luke was, if Luke wrote Luke Acts, Luke was a companion of Paul. Okay, good. Now the person might observe, you know, it's interesting though, in Acts, Acts 6, 7, take a look in the Greek text, you'll notice that in Acts 6, 7, it says, they were, became obedient to the faith. Note that there's the article there. The article is there. Now, if you go instead to the Romans passage, Romans 1, which is where we've got this basic text, in Romans 1, and it says, through whom we got grace and an apostolate for obedience of faith among all the Gentiles on behalf of his name. Well, there's no article there with faith. Does that make a difference? Well, you kind of observe that as you look in the context, you find an interesting lack of articles in the context. Look up in verse 4. In power according to spirit of holiness from resurrection of dead. See, grace, apostolate. So lots of things don't have articles in them. Seems to be a stylistic feature of this text, or maybe not. Now, if you take a look at commentaries, what they'll tend to do is try to figure out on their own what the relationship of this genitive is to obedience. And they'll have obedience, uh, obedience of faith, meaning obedience which springs from faith, or obedience uh, which is characterized by faith, or obedience, maybe in a more Roman Catholic mode, obedience which results in faith. And then there's this fourth one that I'm suggesting, obedience to the faith, which is sort of fides quae, the faith which is believed, rather than the faith by which you believe. Okay? So you've got at least four possibilities, and it's easy. Of course, context is always going to be the key here. But the context sort of doesn't help you. I mean, you look around for it, and just about any one of these is going to work. So what I'm suggesting to you 
is when the context isn't going to really be very helpful, that you proceed along this uncovering the longhand procedure here. That you try to stay as close as possible to the author. And if you go to another author as you expand it, of course, that kind of decreases your likelihood a little bit. But uh, you got something, all right? And if it's if it is within the early church and the whole Judeo-Christian community, you know, like kind of like garage sale, it should be pretty close. But you can always argue it. So I would contend that the Acts passage is the direction we want to go in, in which case, if you take a look now at Romans 1, verse uh, 5, I'm thinking that what we should have here is through whom we got grace and an apostolate for obedience to the faith among the Gentiles, all the Gentiles, meaning by obedience to the faith, I would mean that they become Christians. In other words, it's not talking about your obedience springs from true faith or anything like that, but obedience to the faith, just like it says in Acts, where they now go away from Judaism or they go away from paganism and they embrace the faith. My evidence would be this external entailment study. You know, this is not saying it couldn't mean obedience which springs from faith. Could mean that. Just like a garage sale could mean that they're selling garages. And our problem here is that the context isn't going to necessarily um, uh, solve this one way or another. Does anybody here, maybe even on one of your computers, have a King James? What's that? Bill? I want you to read that. Uh, one five. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. See, that is actually the way the King James takes it. Obedience to the faith. Modern translations do not. Modern translations do not. Um, Nider, what do you have back there? I mean, what version do you have? NASB. Oh, yeah. Now, what do they have? 1-5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Oh, okay. Obedience of faith. So they just kind of let it there without trying to unpack the deeper structure. Billy? The NIV says obedience that comes from faith. That comes from faith. So they're taking the faith would be, if you do the longhand, it is obedience whose wellspring is faith, comes from faith. Right, right. Anybody have the ESV? Uh, yeah, Josh. Obedience of faith. They, they just... They just stick with that, okay? Any other versions you have that, uh, Justin? New Revised Standard does the same, obedience of faith. Obedience of faith. Yeah, see, I think they're just kind of retreating. So many people have gone in the direction of the NIV or something similar. They're probably not completely comfortable 
with going totally away from the King James, so then just give you a surface translation that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Mine says obedience and faith. Oh, wh what is that? Faith and obedience. Obedience and faith? Yeah. Huh. Boy, that's interesting. What's that translation? Obedience. I mean, that's almost like obedience. That's almost like obedience that results in faith. Yeah, you obey and so believe or something like that. Uh, what is that? TNIV. Oh, okay. Oh, really? oh, the, oh, TNIV. All right. Good. All right. So just to recap now, yesterday when we were working on Claytus, we were working on an adjective you know, or a noun that was just by itself, and we were trying to figure out the external entailment. Now, when you have a genitive, now one of the external entailments has actually bubbled up to the surface. And now, so you know you've got to put that in there. Now you've got to figure out what slot it goes in. Final point. This business that we've just reviewed about the genitive, is what in traditional grammatical terms would be called, let me put this up here, uses of the genitive. So for example, Jeff Gibbs likes this Wallace intermediate grammar, and he has a lot of these uses of the genitive. Now, all of that is phony <laughs> because uses of the genitive, now listen to me, uses of the genitive is nothing other than figuring out the external entailment relationship. That's what uses of the genitive is. So if I say, let's take the phrase, hey agape to theu, the love of God. If I say love of God means God's love for me, we call it a subjective genitive because God is the subject of the loving. If love of God means my love for God, we call it an objective genitive because it means I love God as the object. So all of these categories in the grammars for genitives, objective, subjective genitive, genitive of means, it's all a kind of a surface game that you have to realize is actually another version of doing external entailment. Here's another way to say it, and maybe a better way to say it. How the heck would you decide between the uses of the genitive? you'd look at the external entailment study. See? So as far as I'm concerned, charts of the uses of the genitive are useless. The fact is that the genitive may have a relationship to the verbally based noun upon which it depends. Like faith depends on hypocoe obedience, obeying. The relationship to this verbally based noun right here is virtually limitless. Its relationship to that verb is 
what anything in a sentence could be. It could be the subject of the verb. It could be the object of the verb. It could be the indirect object of the verb. It could be just a, an adverbial descriptor of the verb. Um, uh, it could be part of a prepositional phrase. So don't get caught up with these charts of uses of the genitive as if there's some magic to that. All that is is descriptors that you're going to have to put aside. I mean, because look, you'll have a list of like 20 of them or something. How are you going to decide among those? You've got to do an external entailment study. All right, here's the last thing. And I, I say this just, you'll appreciate this, Hutch, just to problematize the whole system. Sweet, yes. All right, notice that obedience of faith is unlike the example in the book. Remember the example in the book was faith of Jesus in Galatians 2? And we said, is it Jesus believing or is it us believing in Jesus? All right, well, Jesus itself is a regular noun. It's not a verbally based noun. But look at the example I have on the board for you. This is itself also verbally based. Does that mean we should put that back to verbs? So you have, and this, by the way, is I think where your translation came from. See, so obedience of faith is obeying, and then they're taking this as believing as the verbal activity. So I bring this up to you that when the dependent noun, like in this case, pistis, is itself verbally based, you might actually be thinking of unpacking that into a verb itself and trying to work on it. Personally, I'm not convinced that that's exactly the way to go, but I want to lay that before you as a possibility. Uh, would this business of under a uh, fancy thing for word studies, we kind of handle that, right? Okay. Um, suing, uh, having sat too close to wood, can you specifically explain how linguistic nets are not the train to oblivion? Well, um, because we're not trying to come up with the real meaning of obedience. We're just trying to figure out what does it mean in this context. Uh, by the way, uh, actually, Tom, you had a second question, which is interesting. Is there any way of knowing if geography had an effect on Greek of the New Testament the way that geography affects English? And by that, I'm taking you mean at a certain place geographically, the nature of English is different. Yeah, yeah. yes. Uh, uh, and people talk about this. For example, the Greek in Alexandria in Egypt would have been a little bit different. Some people feel they can detect Alexandrian Greek in the book of Hebrews. One thing we do know is this. As you get to the eastern end of the Roman Empire, Alexandria would be an example, but certainly in Palestine, the Greek is a lot more Semitized. So there's going to be, for example, the word order 
noun adjective rather than adjective noun. Okay? Uh, you will have n plus the dative rather than the simple dative of means because it's like the Hebrew b. So there will be some semit just like if you're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, you speak this kind of Germanized English and you say things like, hey, come here once, which mimics the German einmal at the end of a sentence. So there, there, there actually is that kind of a thing. There were dialects of Greek, three major dialects, but uh, uh, that most of those are in evidence before Alexander the Great. So that's a good question there. Um, let's see, we've explained this on buzz, on uh, uh, external entailment. Um, oh, Chris, th this is a, a very interesting expand the circle question, I thought. To what extent are non-canonical sources like Clement or Ignatius acceptable or off-limits when seeking uh, the pairs that correspond to event noun and modifier? I am thinking that BDAG, but the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, Gingrich dictionary, does use these early Christian texts to assign meaning. See, that's an interesting thing. Now your circle has kind of expanded out a little bit, but I would probably want to argue that linguistically, you're still in there pretty close, and so, um, um, you know, if, if we talk, I'm just taking a vocable now, <clears throat> we use the word vespers, well, somebody, you know, and the eastern part of the United States in the Lutheran community using Vespers 100 years ago, it's probably going to be about the same thing. But, but the further you move out, the, a little bit more questionable it becomes. But I do think, and I, I, I appreciate this, and I wanted to speak to this paper specifically, because you have raised a question that's been raised by a scholar friend of mine in uh, Lund, Sweden, Chris Karagunis, who has has brought up the issue of the relevance of Greek after the time of the New Testament. So in other words, we tend to think like this. We tend to think, here you have the New Testament, here you have the Old Testament, here you have like classical Greek and so on like that. And so we tend to view everything that way. But the question arises, hey, what about the second century or what about the fourth century? Maybe we should be looking forward because maybe stuff gets more explicated later on. You know, that a lot of the implications are actually made more specific, I guess you'd put it that way. So I agree with that, actually, that it's pretty helpful. And, and let me just say, when I did my dissertation at Cambridge on the imperative, my dissertation supervisor, Jeffrey Lamp, actually, Chris, demanded that. All right, so I was looking at all of the imperatives, the commands, positive and negative, in the New Testament. Every stinking one, thousands of them, okay? So what I did was, and this was before the time of computers, I read through the New Testament twice and, you know, cataloged them all and everything like that. Then... I compared them to their usage in the Septuagint. And I was very proud of myself. Oh, boy, I mean, this, 
increased it tenfold, you know. And my supervisor said, actually, I do think you should try the Apostolic Fathers. So <clears throat> when he suggested that, this, of course, compounded the work, uh, although that's smaller than the New Testament by a little bit. Uh, so then you have the Apostolic Fathers. And what was nice about this, and it was incredibly helpful, I actually found some keys there for what I needed. So you had this bracketed both ways, so to speak, and you actually got to see some specific usages coming afterward. This is going to be a very important point for you. You might actually want to be looking post-New Testament to find linguistic usages. My supervisor, Jeffrey Lamp, uh, did the patristic Greek lexicon. And this is, this goes, you know, till about the 6th century or something like that. And it's, oh, it's got just tremendous stuff, Clement of Alexandria and all this kind of stuff. And it's very handy, actually. Now, this is not a concordance. This is a lexicon like Bauer, Danker, Arndt, Gingrich. <clears throat> but you will see usages of verbs there that are actually very illuminating for stuff that happens in the New Testament. Very helpful. So you, you raised uh, via this, uh, what I really appreciate about this, you raised the question of, of post-New Testament evidence and its appropriateness for using, and it's a very important question. Uh, yeah, Chris. Um, uh, jo uh, Josh, what am I talking about? Chris is over there. Josh. You were talking about looking forward. Yeah. Do we know for certain that the New Testament that we use, the Greek that's in there, is the New Testament, or the same type of Greek that would have been spoken by Paul and Peter and the apostles, or is it an updated version, kind of like we've got the New King James Version of the Bible, it's an updated King James. We can talk about that more at the end of the quarter with text criticism. Um, our texts go back to early 2nd century, no, it, it's probably not updated in the way you're saying, but that is a, a, an important consideration. And what we do find, and maybe this is your point, what we do find in some manuscripts, okay, we do find, remember we talked about this in Greek, Atticisms. So Attic Greek, which is the classical Greek centered around Athens, the manuscripts, like say from the fourth century and so on, will all of a sudden update the Greek, like um, improve the grammar. So instead of saying irregardless, all of a sudden you'd have regardless. See? And one of the principles of text criticism is. If there are two readings and one of them is grammatically questionable, it's probably correct because the copyists tended to improve the grammar on the things. So, yeah, I, that's a very important question. Andrew. 
you, ask, you said this thing about disciplining a child. Now listen to this. You can't tell a child in public that they will be spanked if they continue to misbehave. So sometimes parents will say, be good or we're going to have a talk when you get home. The parent will certainly tell the child they misbehaved, but they may also spank. With, after a few times repeating the pattern, the child understands that talk not only means the conversation, but also that they will be punished. Therefore, that phrase has a double entendre meaning attached to it. I don't think so. I think that's a, that is actually a uh, synecdoche. So it's a part for the whole. They will get a talking to. Then there's more. So it's kind of the entree to the whole thing. Right. Okay. Uh, all right, this is going to be the last one that I'm going to have time to take, and it's from Andy. Uh, Andy, you talked here about the double meanings like cool, you know, or like um, uh, it was katela ben, was not able to grasp it or whatever. If both meanings work, says Andy, and we can determine based off of context and the author's style that he did not intend both, can we assume that the second meaning is purely the work of the Spirit, whether it was at the time of the writing or now at the time of the reading? Ah, interesting. Now we're going to talk about this in just a few periods. And this is, the Roman Catholics get into this, and it's a so-called sensus planior or fuller sense. They like to talk about this that's not completely exactly what we're saying here, but it's related. Planior means fuller. So sensus planior. Uh, and you have to wrestle with that issue, Andy, when you're talking about the scriptures as not only the words of man, but the scriptures also as the word of God. Is the Bible as spirit-breathed a book that has meanings that might have been hidden to the authors themselves or something like that. In general, I'm not real big on that idea, okay? But we'll, we'll come up with that again. That was a very interesting uh, question in this context. Okay, thank you guys. Uh, good uh, handling of Chapter 8. Very, very important one. And let me now conclude the consideration of eight by um, alerting you to, let me show you this book here, Greek, Biblical Greek Language and Lexicography, um, those, so Greek Language and Dictionary Making, and this is edited by Bernard Taylor and some others. This is a fest shrift or festival volume to Fred Danker, the guy who did the lexicon, the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, Gingrich. So it is Essays in Honor of Fred Danker. Yours truly has an essay in here. And it is on external entailment as a category of linguistic analysis. So this is a kind of a rollout of this concept not hidden within that hermeneutics book, but kind of out in public for other linguists and, stu and such to see. And uh, there are more examples. You might want to take a look at this. 
more examples. Uh, you know, I use as one example um, here toward the end this business of exousia in 1 Corinthians 11.10 where it says a woman should have exousia authority on her head. Now, assuming that that's authority is some kind of metonymy for symbol of authority, exousiazo means to exercise authority. Well, who's exercising authority? Her, somebody else. How are they exercising it? Over whom are they exercising it? All of that, would they're all external entailment issues. And uh, I try to you know, relate some of that. So uh, if you're interested in this, take a look at this particular uh, book. By the way, this is uh, here, Erdman's, major publisher, Erdman's. And this was put out in uh, 2004. Now we're going to move on to chapter 9. And chapter 9 is a kind of sneaky important chapter. And that is, it's basically filling stuff out. It's not, chapter 9 is not introducing levels of signifiers. It's not introducing uh, non-literal speech or the concept of conceptual signifieds as such. None of that. It's kind of expanding. However, chapter 9 tends to get issues as to where the interpretive arguments actually are. It tends to focus on items that are, well, the source of discussion in commentaries. Now, a number of you had questions of clarification. And I want to spend most of the focus upon that last part, section E, that had to do with historical writing and allegory. Lots of people focused in on that. But before we get to that, I want to talk about some of the other basic things here, <clears throat> such as filling in the blanks on level two. Um, and we had that example of after the dishes were cleared away, and we have that example of uh, uh, actually filling in the longhand on level two. Now, as a matter of fact, Tassoni, you asked this question specifically. I thought this was kind of interesting. This is what he said. How does filling in the blanks relate to external entailment? It seems to me that they are relate, somewhat related. Well, that is a very perceptive point. And here's what it is. Filling in the blanks on level two is a lot like external entailment on level one. Okay, on level one. So if you, let, let's say, suddenly you, you leave this room and suddenly you see a guy fall backwards down the stairs. Okay? You're going to ask yourself, filling in the blanks, why did he fall? Did somebody push him? Right? Was he just being clumsy? Why was he here right now? All those kind of, those are like external entailment issues on the act of falling or something like that. And so you are doing exactly the same thing. Now, I wanted to point this out. This is a very important point here by Tassoni. Because it helps to establish 
one of the things that I am trying to, um, uh, trying to do in this chapter, just like in chapter 6. Now watch this. What I'm saying, Andrew, is that essentially you're doing the same thing because it's all semiotics. See? What you are doing is you are reading signs. In this case, you're reading the marks. In this case, you're reading the deeds. But when you're on level two, it's all shorthand on level two. The story doesn't, uh, uh, no, who was it? Somebody here, of course, maybe it was you, that, uh, who had that thing about uh, you were going someplace to Iowa and you talked about like opening the door of the car. Who brought that up? Remember we were talking about a scenario and we just said something about, uh, you know, going to Iowa and then somebody said, well, you know, uh, what about opening the door of the car and getting in? See, that's all kind of shorthand. You assume if you say, I, you, went to, uh, uh, you went to Iowa in my new Ford, you're assuming that you opened the door and got into the car, and you're filling in all those kinds of blanks. So um, uh, you are reading deeds just like you're reading the marks on the page. And this helps me to make this point that I just got to keep hammering over and over again. And I fear that still a whole bunch of you will come away with a wrong understanding. And that is, when we talk about interpreting levels, we are not talking about levels of meaning. We are talking about levels of signifiers. So you read the marks on the page first. The marks on the page elicit in your mind, speaking crudely, pictures of deeds. You see Jesus walking on the water. Then you read that deed. Now you're reading on level two. Now you're reading on level two. Because you're not reading the words anymore. You are reading the fact of Jesus walking on the water. So what we're really doing here in chapter 9 is what we did in chapter 8. 8 talked about filling in blanks on level 1, like there are hidden signifiers. Well, there are hidden deed signifiers in the story, like why did Jesus depart and go to Galilee? Remember that example from the chapter? So I mean, was he oblivious? Was he, is this in your face to Herod? Was he fleeing and didn't realize Herod actually lived up there? So, um, or didn't he care? So you're filling in all kinds of stuff that way. Here would be another fill-in for that. How did he get there? Did he take a donkey? Did, uh, did he just walk? Did he go in a sedan chair part of the way? Maybe, you know, he went on a horse and somebody lent, but you're filling in all that. So 
Probably all of you, Bill, if I asked Bill, he'd probably say he walked. Well, the text doesn't say that. You're filling in the blank. Now, I might say right now, I might say right now, filling in the blank, listen to this carefully, filling in the blanks is not interpreting on level two. It's just filling in the blanks. And lots of pastors make this error horribly. They think that if they retell a pericope from the pulpit and then tell, here, here's a great example. Peter at the fire during Jesus' trial and Peter talking to the maid. Peter was there warming himself at the fire. He remembered when Jesus called him when he was fishing. And he remembered how he felt when Jesus summoned him to follow him to be a fisher of men. He saw the one. I haven't done any interpreting. I'm just filling in blanks. That's all I'm doing. That's not interpreting. You're just giving the text longhand at that point. Now, interpreting deeds is something like Jesus walked on the water we know from the Psalms and Job, it describes Yahweh as walking on the water. Jesus is God. Now I'm interpreting on level two. I'm getting a significance of him doing that. I'm not just telling you more about it. I am getting a significance of that. Now, let me skip to relationship of level one and two meanings. Let me just get this and I'll get your question. <clears throat> this is actually very key. How do you get, we, we talked about this in chapter six. How do you get level two signifiers to have meaning? Well, generally speaking, you will look for some level one signifier that tells you. So, in Luke 7, 16, after the young man from Nain arises from the casket, the people say, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Their words are level one signifiers. The guy getting up is a level two signifier. So here's level one. And the young man arose and began to speak. That's level one. The fact that the guy got up, you then interpret. Who? What does that mean that a guy actually arose from the dead? Well, it's going to be up to you to figure that out if there's no level one signifier there. Like the water into wine that we talked about. Interestingly, in this passage, there actually is a level one set of signifiers next to it that does some interpreting for you. A great prophet has arisen among us. Now, using that example, do you see that a level two signifier 
is explained via a level one signifier. See? It's explained that way. When you don't have it, when you don't have it, what you're going to have to do is find another level two thingy someplace that's like it. Like, for example, when Jesus heals the sick and raises the dead, it's similar to the descriptor of what would happen at the last days when the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing for joy. Isaiah 35. And that's a description of what would happen on the last day. Ooh. Well, then when that happens in Jesus' ministry, we say the eschatological blessings are here in Jesus' ministry. I've compared description to description. See, deeds to deeds. I'm reading on level two. It doesn't say that. See, Jesus doesn't say this. <clears throat> Go and read Isaiah 35. He doesn't say that. So you've got to make the descriptor-descriptor connection. Much harder than when there are actual level one signifiers standing next to it. But as I emphasized in chapter 6, remember this. Sometimes those level one descriptors are wrong. Like when Jesus heals the, or th throws out the demon, and then the scribes who come down from Jerusalem say he's in league with Beelzebub. There's a level one explanation right there, and it's wrong. So level one tends to explain level two. Now, in general, and I was talking to Coots, I was talking to you today about this. In general, the epistles express their theology. Now, listen to how I'm going to say this. Here's the shorthand. The epistles exp express their theology on level one. Here's maybe a better way to say it. The epistles express their theology via level one signifiers, via the words on the page. Thus, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself in so many words. But, in the Gospels, Jesus dies, cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The veil of the temple splits, the rocks split open, the saints come out, but there's no level one descriptor as to what that means. You've got to determine that by reading on level two. And so we had a little discussion in class. What does it mean that the temple curtain split in two? Does that mean we now have full access to God? Does it mean God's leaving the temple? And we have an argument about that. But here's my point. In general, level one signifiers 
are the way the theology is expressed in the epistles. Level 2 signifiers, i.e. deeds, are generally the way it's expressed in the Gospels. Now, not completely. You know, you do have descriptions of things. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Those are level one words of Jesus. But in general, you're interpreting deeds in the Gospels, and you're interpreting words in the epistles. That's the general tenor of the thing, which is what we were talking about, which is generally why people find it easier at first when they're preaching to preach from an epistle. Because an epistle has, if I may put it this way, um, it kind of has a, its uh, theology on its sleeve. Now, Nick, you actually said this in your paper. I want to read Nick's paper here. Listen to this. <clears throat> he says, The epistles contain primarily level one signifiers in the gospel levels one and two, thus making it deeper and harder to interpret since the deeds are on level two. I found when doing personal devotions, now listen to how he puts this. I prefer reading the epistles because it's easier to draw direction and knowledge, whereas the gospels aren't as accessible, i.e., as explicit. Right. So when the epistles say, do not use your bodies as weapons for unrighteousness, hey, it's what it means. This is why, in general, the epistles function vis-a-vis -vis the Gospels as commentary. So the Gospels give you your basic what happened, and the epistles give you, in so many words, an explanation of what happened. Now, not completely. I mean, it's not 100% that way. But that's the general way in which it goes. But the foundation is always what happened. That's the foundation for what we're doing. So, um, uh, Nick, thanks very much for that. Um, uh, I, I think that was just really well put. And you, um, you probably articulated what a lot of people feel but aren't quite sure why it is that way. Why it is that way. Now, on this, Dan, uh, you had something interesting here about sports. It says here, um, it is a bit like watching sports or getting the score from a ticker. I am not much of a sports nut, but I don't care about the outcome. I care about the actual play and to see the skill of the athletes. Even if you care about the outcome, there's a difference with just watching the ticker and getting it and actually seeing the game and the development and then you can see actually the importance of some actions that other people aren't going to see and so on. But that's not, a, not too bad an analogy uh, of these things. All right, Dan, uh, let's go to your question now. I have actually two of them now. Um, okay, uh, when you brought up the, the subject of... Uh, the Pharisees seeing Jesus raise somebody from the dead yeah. and saying that uh, he must come from Beelzebub? Uh, well, no, that was casting out a demon. Casting out a demon, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, could that be seen as uh, they see his action and take it to the second level, meaning, yeah. well, I mean, he must be from the devil, and then they, yeah. they reinterpret it back to level one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, now, right. Now, 
Remember, when I say level two, please, guys, get this. When I say level two, it's only level two because we have access to it through a book. Okay? So, in other words, if you're looking at a deed directly, like if you start shaking your fist at me, I don't know that I would call that level two. I mean, it's sort of level one in that I'm looking right at it. See? But why I call it level two is if somebody hands me a piece of paper and it says this, when you had your back to the whiteboard, Dan shook his fist at you. Now if I read shaking the fist, see, first I read the words on the note, then I read the shaking of the fist. So that's why I call it level two, because I'm not seeing it directly. If I'm seeing it directly in an odd sort of way, it's sort of level one. But your explanation is exactly right. They're doing what we would call level two work. They're looking at the deed. They don't see Jesus as coming from God. They're reading the significance of him talking to the demons and casting them out, and they draw the significance Jesus is, is in league with Beelzebub. Then they express that interpretation with level one signifiers, which are the words. Yeah, that's exactly right. But they had to read the deeds first. I mean, I'm assuming they did. Yeah, that, that they would have read the words. All right, what's your second question? Uh, relating back to uh, Peter, uh, when he's in the, uh, by the fire uh, with yeah, the yeah. maid. Yeah. Um, what exactly, uh, could you, uh, well, could you draw uh, a comparison or say something along the lines, well, Peter said he would be the last one to deny him, so he went all the way to the court. I mean... Could, yeah. you, could you read that far into it, or is that, is that becoming too much of a filling in the blanks? Oh, I'm not saying you can't do that. You know, I, I just don't know, like, what theology have you gotten out of that? You've simply expanded on the story. So, you know, so he said he'd be the last to deny. He went all the way into the court. Yeah, and... Well, and that relates again to him promising to do that, Jesus telling him that he won't, uh, he'll deny him three times. He goes ahead and goes into the court, denies him three times, and then relating it later to him uh, reaffirming his commitment. Uh, well, yeah, yes, but I don't, you've, I mean, that's fine. You filled in the blank about because he had said he wouldn't deny him, he wound up at the court. But you notice that when you did your theologizing, you didn't actually make a point of that. You just said, Jesus said he'd deny him three times. He did deny him three times. Later on, he affirmed him three times. I'm not saying you can't fill out the story. It's just that that's not doing any theology on the story. Now, now let's do a little level two work here. So when Jesus re, you know, asks him three times and then kind of restores him, if you start drawing this significance that our Lord is a forgiving God who will bring his servants back into the fold. Now you're reading on level two. Yeah, okay, so for Monday, uh, uh, we've, we've, got, we've got work to do on this allegory thing. So many of you ask questions about that. Uh, give me a paper for 10, which is the next assignment, but we'll only briefly get into that uh, I really want to talk about that allegory business because it's very important about historicity and the Gospels and so on. Thanks.